So one second, just run me through that again. It's okay. So the correct pronunciation is Amherst when you're discussing Massachusetts. I don't think I can say that. Let me try. Amherst. I just sound like a farmer. It's like a reverse My Fair Lady right now, <laughs> except both of us are Rex Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> This is Edicts on Edicts, a podcast about Emily Dickinson. The quarantine queen. The quarantine queen. Um, Mm. Love it. So today we are watching and discussing episode two of season two of Dickinson. Yes. Fame Um, fickle food. Yes. It's a uh, a good one. I've used this one in reference to some jobs that I have done in the past. Oh, really? When I think about famous people. Fame is hard, yo. <laughs> I love, I love like, listening to you talk about famous people because I have, I have never, so I don't think I have ever met anyone famous in my entire mm. life. Mm. Um, I'm just thinking about it now. No, I honestly, oh, actually, that's not true. Oh. That's not true. I went to a party and I met the Japan rugby team. Oh. And like... Wow. Yeah. And I shook hands with them. Oh. Um, and I think I met the CEO of Coca-Cola. That's cool. Yeah, it was in Tokyo, and it's when I was dating this guy. And um, they had, like, a annual Coca-Cola company party. And this mm-hmm. guy is, like, a banker to do with it or something. And we went to this party. And then they had, like, these flashing disco lights. And then, like, all of the Japan rugby team came out in their uniforms. And they were like, yay, Coca-Cola is a sponsor of Japan Rugby. Yep. Sounds about right. Like, and I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> <Neat>. <laughs> and there were all these like Coca-Cola company people there. Um, yep. And it was, in the, it was in the Hilton in, in Shibuya. In Shin- oh, okay. Or Shinjuku, I can't remember. Sh- there's, there's like multiple Hiltons, but I think the big one's in Shinjuku. I think it was probably that one then. Yeah. Man, so, remember... Dating and parties. <laughs> <laughs> that was a different world. I think the last time I went out with someone was like 1862 or something. Right. I don't, I don't know. So fame is a fickle food. Um, fame is a fickle food. And uh, I think it's my turn to read the summary of the episode. I will do my best by plagiarizing Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> so um, basically, there's a cattle show in Am- Amherst. There's a cattle show in Amherst. After coming in second in the baking contest the previous year, Emily is obsessed with winning the Amherst Cattle Show Baking Contest. After she wins, she learns her recipe will be published in the newspaper. Uh, she Sue uses the win to push Emily towards publication of her poems via Samuel Bowles' newspaper. Um, Sam and Emily start an intriguing friendship, and she shares a poem with him. Meanwhile, Austin, unaware of Sue's previous miscarriage, asks her to consider having a child with him. Uh, so that's the summary of the episode, basically. And I have to say, this episode continues with the high quality we saw in the first episode of this season, I think, in terms there of production. A marked, yeah. I think there's just an improvement across the board. Everything's funnier. Everything, the cattle show is actually a really impressive like setup that they've got. 
I liked the reappearance of some minor characters from last season as well. Like we had the railway man and Aunt Lavinia. <laughs> yes. um, and I love the bit when he's like, you didn't contact, or was he like, you didn't reply to my letters or something. And, and she's like, after you gave me so-and-so um, on our last meeting, and she's like, when you gave me syphilis, yep. like everyone oh. overhears. <laughs> it was like you gave me a tour of your garden. Oh yeah, you <laughs> gave me a tour like, of your you garden. Syphilis. <laughs> oh, brutal. Have you ever known anyone to catch syphilis in the modern? I mean, I know people do, but have you? I was personally... about to say I know people. Uh, no, I have not. I have been tested for it many times, as I am attempting to be. No, I just am being responsible. But like. No, yeah, I don't know I've anybody been, who's had it. I've been tested for it as well as part of like the usual SD right, round of run. yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know anyone who who has had it. Um, no, it's but, kind of wild um, to imagine that it exists still, but it definitely does. Uh, yeah, and it's crazy, isn't it? Because like that's what they that's what they had back then, and there yeah. wasn't really much of a way to treat it. Like, didn't they used to treat it with mercury? I was about to say it was like mercury, which, yeah, yeah I was reading this, this book about like um, Victorian, these two Victorian era queer men who, or queers, it, one of them I think may have been gender fluid. Um, it's unclear. But right. like, both of them basically end up dying from complications from syphilis. Oh, oh no. no, that is what happened back then. Yeah, a lot of people did. I mean, maybe that's why Emily never got married, because she just watched her Aunt Lavinia die from syphilis, and she was like, hell no. That widow's euphoria does not end well. Jane's a widow as well now, isn't she? Is Is she having widow's euphoria? Um, Not that we've seen, but like her thing right now, she's in the stage of widow's euphoria, just constant fainting. (laughs) Yeah, and I love how like her friends are like, so cool. Every time she does it. (laughs) <laughs> I'm a widow. And everyone's like, mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what are you up to lately? I'm a widow now. <laughs> like, so that, as bad. if that's something you do. Um, I mean, Queen Victoria turned it into a career, so. She did. She, I, <laughs> it's wacky looking at how long the Victorian era lasts. Oh my God. Like, I know. She held on to that crown for a while. <laughs> I mean, Emily, Emily is a Victorian. Yeah, that's true. Queen Victoria outlives her. But yeah, so, okay, so we've got the baking contest. We have an opening scene where Emily, like, reveals this, like, grand, towering cake. Yes, and I love how, like, she makes the cake. Sorry, I'm interrupting, but I love how she makes the cake. And then she's like, everyone try it. And then she's turned out she's made two. She's She's got, like, the spare one and then, like, the actual one. I couldn't figure out if that cake looked amazing or disgusting in how like I, giant it was. I thought it looked disgusting. Right? I, I, I was looking at it and I was like, that does not look appetizing at all. <laughs> it's just so like ostentatious that like ugh. <laughs> and I thought everyone else's cakes looked really nice. <laughs> I was like, oh, like I'm liking these. Like they're all kind of ornate and made with gelatin and stuff. And then you have this monstrosity. Yeah, but but I do like how they're depicting her as being like, because because it kind of like is a nice callback to season one when she made the bread and everything. 
yeah that, yeah that emily's character has progressed in the gap between season one and two she's become like quite keen on her baking which is accurate to the real emily it's going to say she did have uh i was looking through and like one of the things that was preserved from her was like a coconut pie like a coconut cake recipe like her handwritten one and i was just like oh my god which i think is actually used in a joke in wild nights with emily where like sue starts reading it and then she's like no 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 the poem's on the other side oh yeah but there is like a a record of her baking recipes still around which i think is cool so we've got that and then we've got mrs dickinson who is oh yes feeling kind of naughty tonight she is right she's this is their one time a year so so she says it's like the one time a year when she tells the poor maid what's her name again maggie 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 she tells maggie like who's desperate not to hear it that um (laughs) this is like the one time a year when she and mr dickinson rekindle the fire of their marriage um like desperate to get out of there i love it um (laughs) it's, it's quite funny there is a cut um, to her later just carrying a massive tray of oysters. I <laughs> know, yeah. She's like, I better get some she's like, get some oysters and and then she comes out and she, yeah, she's got that whole tray. And I love how um in the episode before that, Lavinia had made that joke about like oysters are actually like <laughs> cheap and widely available food. It's quite it's it's good. And and the running <laughs> gag, of course, is that Mr. Dickinson is checking his watch, but he's right. checking his watch because he has to go in get the train and well not get the train but pick some people pick those. he's got to go deal with uh samuel balls he's got some business to attend to yes exactly mm. um and i just felt kind of sorry for mrs dickens mrs dickinson because she's still very much a comic relief character but also she seems to be coming into like a stage where she becomes less and less relevant in the household mm. mm-hmm. um just with Maggie there and Emily there doing domestic like stuff. The kids growing up, Austin's moved out, which I did to follow up on our previous episode. I did discover that the Evergreens, as their house is known, is still around. So we will visit on that road trip. That would be amazing. Yeah. Check and see if the wallpaper matches. I was going to say, like, I would love to also visit the sets that they filmed Dickinson on, mm. just because. I think that they're really well designed and very pretty. So I, I think that would be super intriguing to we, like walk like, around and see. Visiting sets are really interesting too, because you just see how, you know, these things are designed so that you can remove a wall at any point to get the right camera angle. So it could be yeah. really interesting for you to just be like, oh, right. <laughs> None <laughs> of this is all, real. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> all plywood and like, yeah it's funny no i think that would be really interesting and also like i i have to again really applaud like the the kind of people who work on the set and costumes Mm. and everything because in some ways as much as i would love to meet the actors and stuff i would be almost more interesting to meet the people who do the research and then try and produce yeah something that is both contemporary to the time but also suitable for the recording of what is essentially kind of a sitcom in a way right like Um, threading that how the team of the show has to collectively thread the needle of like historical representation but also like 
you know, you have to make it so people can drop the line. Like uh, I'm trying to think of one of the lines that they use and I just am coming up blank, but like the, the idea of balancing that, like contemporary commentary and like historical representation. Yeah. Which 100%. I think the show is doing a much better job of this season as opposed to last um, season. Yeah, I think so. I mean, last season, last season, the costumes and the sets were still like oh, yeah. the, the highlight. However, yes. um, the actors as well now seem mm. like a lot more comfortable yes. um, in the period. Because I was reflecting on this, because like in the UK, we're so used to period dramas here. Right. You know? Like, we have them all the time. BBC, mm-hmm. ITV, they're always doing these dramas, whether it be, like, Downton Abbey or it be, like, um, Peaky Blinders or, like... Right. People are so used to it. So actors here, when mm-hmm. they're learning to act, and also because of Shakespeare, it's just mm-hmm. everyone, either through TV or through theatre, has this kind of, like, yeah, we've done period dramas. We've done, like, speaking in old-timey speak. We've, we, we're used to wearing corsets and waistcoats and and top hats yeah. and you know all this kind of stuff like whereas i think that in america period dramas seem to just be coming into mm-hmm. into their own almost mm-hmm. like you had mad men for example yes um that was kind of i would say one of the first like really intense Big, period pieces, pieces. yeah yes. yeah because like really one of the, almost one of the characters of mad men is the 1950s 60s. You know, sorry, 60s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, because it is, it is about that, like, social transition that happens in that time period between the 60s into the 70s. Like, yeah, yeah. So I true. feel like it's becoming, maybe America is getting to a point where they are, it is an old enough country right. and it is going through such a big cultural transition at the moment that period dramas are becoming a way of cultural reflection reflecting culturally and so yeah maybe we've reached a point in the country's maturity question mark that like we can start reflecting back in a thoughtful way yeah maybe i mean i don't know but i do think that in season one of dickinson the actors Mm. were sometimes in this awkward position where it was like how how modern are we right Because, like, the characters speak in a very modern way. Right. But their actions and their their thoughts that they express often reflect older perspectives. Yes. Like, not so much the female characters, but a lot of the male characters um, kind of verbalize very old-fashioned views, but in very modern language. Right. Um, And I just, I think the show has gotten a lot better at, like, striking that that balance yeah because like but that that works a lot better now than i think it might have done last yeah. season and the guy who plays austin um what's his name i've got it here i got it here of course um, you do uh, adrian blay ensco that's it mm-hmm. um he he was good last season as well like i don't i have no critiques of his performance at all um but he just seems to have settled into the character a bit more i was thinking about this because I'm trying to remember if the previous season actually named a time period because the characters were behaving in ways that were so immature that I was it was hard to sort of pin down where exactly they yes. were in their ages whereas now they have set a year it is 1859 that's clear Emily is 
28, 29 at this point. So like she's settling into who she's going to be like. And I think there's a clarity, even though they don't have like the historical record to work with because the opening of the season is like, we don't really have it. They have like a period, they have ages and like there's a clarity that goes with that that they can play around with now. And I think it's reflected in the writing and the execution of the show that really works for me. I also have a note here about like in the the ending scene where they have like free the wrist because they're like the pagoda sleeve is what I'm all about these days. And I'm like, (laughs) that's another lovely like juxtaposition of like where we are now with, you know, free the nipple. Like, yeah. And also like they use a lot of, it's like when Lavinia um, called Sue like an influencer. Yes. And And I think what's nice about that is like, it's that whole sense of like the language changes, but the temperament doesn't. Right. People, the younger generation always has its kind of cutting edge, as it were. Vernacular and its trends and yeah. But they're always they're they're always kind of on the same path, you know, like one generation turns into the next almost. Mm. Or turns into the previous generation. Oh absolutely. Oh god, Um, I feel it's happening now and it's awful. No, I know I was on the train today on the way home from work and there was a bunch of like teenage girls being really loud and rude. And I was like, young people. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my god, where did that come from? It like just, just like came kind of formatted up. It, yeah, it just like yeah. came out of nowhere. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs> generations upon generations of judgmental uh, older people emerging all at once to be like eh. exactly. Yeah, it's like young the weight people. of. But yeah, I think the other thing that you just said that I think is really interesting is how you said like Emily settling into who mm. she's going to become. And obviously when we started doing this back in season one, I went away and I read some biographies of Emily yeah. to, um, you know, study up a bit. When we were talking about last episode and about the what we think the arc of the season is going to be, narr- mm-hmm. the narrative arc of the season, mm-hmm. um, it reminded me of some stuff I think I, I had read I'm actually on the Poetry Foundation website. Mm. Um, and then so I went away and I found that again. And I just thought I would, because I think it's really relevant. I would love to read it and see what you think. Okay. Um, you may have read it yourself. But basically, it's part of the biography section on the Poetry Foundation website uh, where they're talking about Emily. Uh, and it's about the kind of, not later years, but like during her most prolific period. Yes. And it's in relation to her relationship with Susan specifically. And it says here uh, that Susan Dickinson would not join Emily in the walk, in inverted commas, became increasingly clear as she turned her attention to the social duties befitting the wife of a rising lawyer. Um, Between hosting distinguished visitors, presiding over dinners, mothering three children, uh, Susan Dickinson's dear fancy, again in inverted commas, was far from Emily's. As Emily had predicted, their paths diverged, but the letters and poems continued. The letters grew more cryptic, aphorism defining the distance between them. And then it goes on to say, as the relationship with Susan Dickinson wavered, other aspects of Emily's life would just come into the fore. The 1850s marked a shift in in her friendships. Uh, As her school friends married, she sought new companions defined by the written word. And so it goes on to point out basically that during this stage of her life, a lot of the people she knew personally in her immediate surroundings withdrew from her or became distracted by other elements of their lives, marriage, right. children, etc. And that Emily's 
friends became almost entirely epistolary in in nature um and so people like sam bowles who is a character this season she actually mainly had a relationship with by correspondence right yes and i just think it's really interesting that it's kind of like she kind of withdraws from sue and the final point that is really interesting in this biography here Mm -hmm. um is that it says the language in emily's letters to bowles uh, and others is similar to the passionate language of her letters to susan gilbert dickinson and it says she readily declared her love to him aka sam sam bowles and also readily declared that same love to his wife, Mary, mm. um, in each of whom she hoped to find an answering spirit. I think we focus so much on, at the moment, on her relationship with Susan. Mm-hmm. Um, but here it's saying, oh, you know, the language of her letters was the same to Sam Bowles and Mary. Yeah. It's almost like in this period of Emily's life, she realized that her relationship with Sue is not going to be enough. Mm. And that she has to reach out and form relationships with other people. And then it says here, like, for Emily, the next years of her life were both powerful and difficult. Her letters reflect the centrality of friendship in her life. As she comments to Samuel Bowles in 18, 1858, my friends are my estate. Forgive me, for, uh, forgive me then the avarice to hoard them. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, so I think this is interesting that in Dickinson we're seeing this stage of Emily's life. And I think that perhaps this season will be how that relationship to Sue doesn't break, but has to transform into something. That she is less dependent upon. Mm. Mm. And in this episode, in episode two, um, we get that time between Emily and Sam Bowles as well, don't we? Yes, I was like, I feel like the big scene or sequence in this, because it's over several scenes, is that that walk and talk between Emily and Sam Bowles. I have a few notes about that where I just, he talks about how she reminds him of Mary. Yes. And that they both have, yeah, they both have the ability to see the darker side of life and everything that goes along with that. I mean, what do you think of the actual character of Sam Bowles? Like, not necessarily the real person that we have read about. but Within the context of the show. Yeah, the the, Mm. the fictional character on the show. What do you think of him? Yeah. This, uh, again, without trying to give away what happens in the course of the season. But, like, there is this interesting... He's hard to pin down, it feels, at this point. Because he is very charming. But there is that sort of like, you know, Silicon Valley bro idea to him, which is like, go in. I think he even has the line of like, break stuff, like go in, make it new. And that makes yeah. him like, where, where is the show going to land on this idea of the embodiment of like innovation in inverted commas, which is a funny expression that we do not use in American English. But like, yeah, this juxtaposition of innovation and who Emily is. Because um, you see when she, when she extemporaneously creates the fame as a fickle food poem for him, like he knows she's a genius. He knows that mm. what she creates is powerful. And the nature of that is, as of yet, unclear. Mm-mm. 
so I don't know what happens in future episodes. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I'll say is like, just from what I've seen of the character so far, I think he's an arsehole. Um, <laughs> okay. Like, because maybe it is like that Silicon Valley kind of thing of him, but like yeah. he just, and I really, I don't want to offend our, I don't want to offend you. I don't want to offend our listeners at all. But he just reminds me of like the things I don't like about American culture, <laughs> which is this like endless self promotion mm-hmm. and like and what's like being self aggrandization. Th- there's that, but also like insincere, right? Because uh, he's like sure. so he's so like oh yeah, like I'm all, I really want to meet you because you're like a genius, blah blah blah. Right. But then like, how much is he saying that? because he actually thinks it and how much is like, that's just, he says that to everyone, you know, because right. mm-hmm. he really comes across as being a bit untrustworthy. Um, mm. I is mean, what I would say. I have a note in here that just says, he says the line, people are deceptive. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as he said that, I was like, he's excusing himself mm. or he's, he's, he's saying, you know, people are deceptive almost as like a self, almost as a justification, mm-hmm. really, as if he's forewarned her. Right. You know, like, I told you people are deceptive. You should never have trusted me in the first place. <laughs> and then he, like, <laughs> does, like, a, I don't know, like a Nazi salute or something. Swirls his cape and turns into a bat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's what I thought anyway. But um Okay, so we can actually, because we did not talk about him last episode, and I figure we should. Um, yeah. The, the figure of nobody? Yes. So, because I think, because there are kind of two right. opposite figures in the episode, mm-hmm. right? There's like Sam Bowles and yes. nobody. Yes. Um, so, yeah, do you want to just... So nobody appears in the first episode while Emily is on the train coming back from the eye doctor, um, which is where you get the beginnings of the poem of I am nobody, who are you? Which is like, you know, probably Emily Dickinson's version of like Born to Run, her biggest poem. Um, And so it's clear to me that like, that's going to be the running thread through the season is this question of, I am nobody, who are you? Mm. And so we see him appear once on the train in the first episode, and then I have a note that he appears at the baking contest? Question he mark? does, yes. Okay. She sees okay. him when the judges are literally judging her cake. Got she it. sees him. And then we see him again at the end, and he warns her about what she's doing in this yes. pursuit of fame. And it's and so he he is in contrast, almost direct contrast with Sam, isn't he? Because Sam's like mm-hmm. representing fame and wealth and mm-hmm. Susan Dickinson's world of society and mm-hmm. and these kind of things. And then nobody, this phantom figure that Emily sees mm-hmm. that no one else sees, kind of represents that anonymous phantasmal interior world i guess is uh, because i had a different thought at this point in the season about what this figure was going to represent and i was wondering like because i was thinking about like this person is a a ghost like a spectral figure and Mm. i assumed that 
they were going to be set up as like a figure who is dead, who is visiting Emily, who like lived that sort of life that she ends up living in real life, which is that they have that sort of interior going Mm. on and just nobody knows who they were. So you think like he is the fan, he's the ghost of another lost genius, basically, Mm. is what you're saying. What I had taken them to be at this point in the season. Yeah. I mean, it's entirely possible. Mm. I mean, Emily herself doesn't seem to have yet determined what this person, what or who this person is. Right. Um, I, I do think he's more than a metaphor. Like I think as the season goes on, we will discover more about this. Nobody. Mm. Um, obviously he's communicating with the lines of one of her more famous poems. Right. Um, or is it a whole poem or is it just it's a whole poem Um, yeah it's got two stanzas yeah yeah I'm nobody who are you yes Um, and I I will say hold on we'll we'll get to the poem later in the season (laughs) okay um but yeah like that's that's interesting to me that that Mm. poem because every episode we have a poem but also the idea that there's like one underlying poem underneath it all is quite interesting. So I'm looking forward to discussing that. Right. But yeah, as far as I see it now, they seem to be kind of like oppositional figures, samples on one hand and and nobody on the other. Yeah. And maybe yeah. Sue and Emily are both going through the same journey. And it's the case that Sue is choosing the journey to follow the path that leads to Sam Bowles and people like Sam Bowles. Mm. And and we're seeing Emily's decision making pro process where she's trying to decide which Mm -hmm. which way she's going Um, so the idea is that like sue is pursuing notoriety and recognition and fame yes mm, and emily is yeah yeah. she sees that as like the best thing to do Um, yeah and i can understand why sue might be frustrated because if you think about it all of last season emily was endlessly telling sue women should go out and do this and do this and yeah there's no reason why we can't be famous and talented and and all these things which is all true Mm -hmm. um but then sue's actually living that and suddenly emily's like oh i don't know if i want this anymore you know (laughs) um but if i was sue i'd be like what the fuck like you just spent the last decade telling me (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly now i'm doing it and you're like unhappy and (laughs) and it's Yeah. And it's like the inverse of when Emily made fun of Sue for having like that frugal housewife book or whatever. Yes. And now it's almost like Emily's the one doing all the baking and cleaning and retreating into the house. Yeah. So there's a real like inversion, like mm. a dramatic inversion here, which I think is great. What I, I have a note in here that I just really loved the bit of Lavinia talking to the Native American sailor. And oh, yeah. this character just dropping, like, there's actually lots of Native American sailors at this time period. <laughs> yeah, I love how, like, um, it kind of breaks the fourth wall. I love whenever, because <laughs> they did it with Louisa May Alcott as well, where she's like, I just love to run, that's a fact about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, all of these weird little recalibrations of history. And it's like, it's like um, the the main characters don't mm. seem to be aware that they're in a historical drama. But right. all the 
all the peripheral characters <laughs> are like in on the joke, if you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I absolutely love. And I wonder too, like to tie it back into this idea of like America finally entering the stage of where we can have period or where we're having a, a influx of period dramas. If we yeah. aren't going to see more of this sort of reinterpretation of our history, because so much of what we're taught growing up has been mythologized yeah i mean i remember what i because when i was in japan obviously i met way more americans than mm. i had ever before um, sure. even though i was quite widely traveled mm -hmm. in other areas of the world obviously japan just has a lot of americans um yeah and my it's amazing that the things that i was taught in school about american history Mm -hmm. are so wildly different from what <laughs> the americans i knew understood of their history mm. and obviously i can't say oh but you know we europeans we got it right um right but it was just like really so i'll give one example which is that i was at a party and i was drinking and um uh, what was it like this guy was like saying oh like he was saying something about the war of independence and he made like the usual joke of like, oh, the Brits are just still sore about us winning right. the War of Independence. And I said, well, in fairness, Napoleon was a thing. At that time, <laughs> in 1776, Napoleon? I thought he was a bit later. Uh, no, the Brits were, current, were fighting France at the time. But so France the hasn't gone, in 1776, France hasn't gone through the French Revolution yet. So you're still dealing with the king. No, because we were at war with the French at the time. Yes. It, it wasn't Napoleon, true. but we were Napoleon. at war with the French. Yeah. So, but that's just like a constant. Because my thing. understanding of how, because Britain was spread too thin at the time with mm. the American Revolutionary War, because we had to make a choice between sending yeah. troops to America or, or bolstering the Navy mm. in Europe, basically. Mm. And the decision was made just to, to don't send the troops to America. America. Exactly. Mm. Um, I, because I think like the stuff with Egypt. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I guess my point was like, we, to us, American history is always very peripheral. Mm. Right? Because sure. like when I was growing up, the, America only becomes a world power quite late in the game. Mm. So, like, literally, I remember we did. When we were doing history, we didn't even do British history. We did European history, right? It's like when you get to World War One is when we start talking about America, America, yeah. essentially North America, because we discuss South America a bit with Spain and everything. For me, like a lot of the things that Americans can point to on the timeline, mm. I can't point to because I just don't know when they happened. Like it's it's. It's, it, I don't want to say it's not relevant because it is relevant, but for a long time, America was kind of its own thing. <laughs> like, you it's know, it's interesting because we say that, and yet, like, okay, so I'm, I'm working on a script, blah blah blah, but like, it is set in a specific time period, and it's interesting to see, like, we imagine all these things as being pretty, you know, hermetically sealed. Like, Europe is doing its own thing, and America is doing its own mm. thing, but actually, there was. A lot of exchange happening at the time yeah of course there was and i think yeah. that's the that's the issue with how we think of history now which is right. that we we don't understand that that when mm. things are happening in one place mm -hmm. 
there are other things happening at this, right? I, this is completely tangential to this episode discussion, but like I went on a hike recently. Um, mm. I got to the top of the mountain and there was like a, a marker and like a little plaque about the history of this mountaintop. And it turns out that the mountain had been a signal fire area between the two like warring clans. It was basically on the border between these two and the person i was hiking with was telling me about how like even in japan at the time there were the like before japan was unified under like the tokugawa clan there were two warring clans both of whom had backing from different countries in europe right so the reason why you have portugal and you have the dutch in two different areas or that they're supporting these two different clans yeah and the winners got to keep trading with japan and the losers got thrown into a volcano so then <laughs> <laughs> that's why the portuguese weren't a big factor in japan after that <laughs> but even at that point like we imagine that japan was like a hermetically sealed country but mm. even then it was still like under the whims of like europe in many ways well it's like I mean, I'll give you another example, but mm. I think is really interesting, which is that, which is that, obviously, for example, the Salem witch trials, right, yes. are at the end of the 17th century. Mm-hmm. The 17th century also happens to be the century in which the Ottoman Empire is still pretty much a world power, mm-hmm. and the Edo period is happening, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, and the kingdom and the and the palace of Versailles is at its its height, you know. Mm. But yeah, also we've got this idea of like, oh, there's these little like pilgrims, right? <laughs> <laughs> like in America, like and they're <laughs> they're doing like hanging, burning like witches, locking, you know, locking we like locking women in stocks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's like yeah. nothing, as you say, like there's nothing hermetically so. Like everything happens out, not at once, but like. Geography, consequential. Yes, exactly, exactly. Mm. But anyway, sorry to get back to my original point. Yes, (laughs) um, which going to go all the way back now. I just think like a lot of the things that we were talking about were not things that Mm. Americans talk about in regarding to their own history. Yeah, yeah. Um, Like the founding fathers, for example. Like we barely learned anything about the founding fathers. I find the the the. the reverent tone that so many people discuss the founders as though they were these like intensely, you know, enlightened individuals as opposed to like, I mean, that, that rhetoric is changing now. I think America both, maybe it is like encapsulated in Dickinson, which is such an interesting moment in history to be uh, aware of, which is this like idea of, you know, we imagine George Washington as like incredibly smart, incredibly, um, like led the country through the revolutionary war led the country in the beginning all these things but like in truth i I read recently that he uh, like he owned slaves this is not new but like at a time when he was in pennsylvania where pennsylvania had a law if you know a slave was in pennsylvania for six months they were automatically Mm. freed like Mm. he would send them back to virginia so that and then yeah so that it could reset the timeline on that course to freedom. And I was like, they knew what they were doing. And like Dickinson in many ways is reconciling with this idea of we have whitewashed 
American history to such an extent. And now it is news to us that there were like Native American sailors. Like I had no idea that that was a thing. And it, and it's like, well, so for example, like, um, th- I mean, there's a great, you can, if you read Moby Dick, for example. I will probably not read Moby Dick. Okay, well, I suggest it actually, because it's, 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 it's actually good, quite, yeah. it is actually quite good. But um, there's like a really famous character in Moby Dick, um, whose name just is on oh, the quick tip of my... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And like, he's actually written and represented in such a three-dimensional, interesting mm. way. But mm-hmm. the way that Ishmael thinks of him is so reflective of the general American attitude to Native Americans um, at the time. So it's just really fascinating because it's almost like um, Herman Melville was aware of of how Native... Uh, it's very vague. You can't really tell from reading it if he was aware of how he was writing him or if he was just kind of just doing whatever. Write it, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like, like it, it's... Mark Twain does something similar where it is like he and this is why i think a lot of the idea of people being uncomfortable with the fact that like you know huckleberry finn contains the n-word and they're like oh i'm so you know we don't want to read this we should ban it but the entire point is the use of that word and it is like to make you uncomfortable and to sort of force you to realize that the way that people are engaging with this Mm. character is wrong but i think it's great if if America as a country is coming into this time when it can be more reflective on its history and, and, mm. and be more critical. Cause I think, cause from my perspective, there are a lot of things about American history that are really amazing. Like that, that yes. you know, there's no, it, it's not a case of like, it's new to Europeans looking down and saying, Oh, <laughs> you know, America, you know, no, like America was, a, is a, was a fascinating, almost a fascinating experiment. Mm-hmm. If you see what I mean, that kind of, became is? something great <laughs> is a fascinating experience um that has become something great yeah. you know and yeah. there's a lot that's really interesting and a lot that's really good i mean like for example the fact that you you have such a interesting system of governance and like mm. the bill of rights mm. um and just the, well the constitution sorry i call it a bill of rights um, there is, I mean, there's a constitution and there's the Bill of Rights. Like, they are two right. separate establishing So it's just like, anyway. there's a lot to be interested by, but I feel mm. like America needs to look past its mythology and find right. the things that actually are worthy of celebration. And finding the things that are in need of, like, repair or reconciliation or, you know, progress. Yeah. And I think to bring it back to the show like on a very micro level when we're discussing like the larger american history like the figure of emily dickinson herself with the show and all the other media that's happening around her is going through this sort of microcosm of rehabilitation where it's like Mm. she wasn't a crazy woman locked in an attic she had like a rich full life she had friends she had you know she created works of genius but because the people who controlled the narrative of her life before controlled it, like she was framed as a crazy person. Um, but I think it's it's very hard because like my right. m- the past is always being used as propaganda for the future, right? Mm-hmm. Or propaganda for the present. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the thing about historical figures is that they can always be reinterpreted to yes. suit the dominant political right. situation. Um, Emily Dickinson can go from being a recluse to being a revolutionary. George Washington can go from being a fatherly figure to an asshole who owns slaves. Yes. And like, as someone, because my, my degree was in history, mm. and I'm still very passionate about history, I always want to try and get as close to the real person as I can mm. um, through the evidence that's available. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the show gives us this, I mean, this season of Dickinson, I feel like is beginning to get us closer to mm. that Emily, even though it's depicting a period of her life that is less documented. Mm-hmm. And But that's per- perhaps because it's based more heavily on her poetry that she herself wrote. Right. Rather than on what politically the show wants to say about Emily. Mm-hmm. If it that is- makes sense. Yeah, no, I think I think it makes sense that they're they're because they have less documentation to work with. They they do a bit more psychological reflection. Not to say they weren't doing it in the first season, but like they they go more in depth. And like you say when you read that that biography in the Poetry Foundation, like we have the letters that she sent to people during this time and we know that like she used this sort of language in her letters to discuss attachments to people. I think the show is reflecting that in a very interesting way. Um, Before we just round out talking about the episode, there's one more bit of this biography that I thought was really interesting that I was reading that I thought was great, that I would just like to discuss, um, which is that they talk about how we have this image of her as a hermit and how this Mm. image is incorrect. Mm -hmm. Um, But they explain it in such a sensible way and mm. such a historically, it's, it's a very insightful and accurate observation, I think. Because mm. um, it says that at this time, her letter writing boomed, right? Mm. She, she moved to this epistolary format for her friendships where she was spending a lot of time writing letters to and from people. Mm. Um, and this is also around the same time that she began to be termed a recluse or a hermit. Mm. Um, and this biographer points out here that it may simply be the case that at the time in 1858, 9, 1860, uh, social calls were like mired in ritual mm. and and expectation um, and material requirements such as clothing, fashions, food, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that may have just been enough to dissuade Emily from taking part in them. Mm-hmm. And it might not be the case that Emily didn't want to see people, but more that she wanted to spend time writing. Yep. And writing letters was a way to hone her skill with language mm-hmm. and also express herself more accurately than she would have if she was doing these social calls that Susan Dickinson was doing at the was time. Doing. Yeah. And it says here that she um, she's quoted in one of her letters as saying that letter writing is visiting at its best. Letter writing is visiting at its best. Um, and then it says the correspondents could speak their minds outside the formulas of parlor conversation, uh, employing active engagement in the art of writing. Hmm. 
letters were a literary apprenticeship uh, and Dickinson used them to hone her skills of expression, turning practice into performance. Um, so I think that just like puts another spin on this whole, she was a hermit right. thing. Right. That maybe she just preferred that form of engagement with others. Yeah. I mean, we will, we will get more into this as we get further along in the season. Um, yeah. Well, cause I think that's what the season is doing, which is sort of tracing that psychology, but also, I mean, like as someone who's, you know, spending a lot of time alone and like is doing a lot more writing, like it does, mm. it is interesting to sort of do it in various forms. Like I, I wake up and I do the like three pages of just whatever is in my brain and those are not meant to ever be seen. But then I do other forms of writing that are meant to be shared. And I wonder if like that exercise of both writing her poetry and writing letters and like, I'm sure writing in other formats as well became like a, a training ritual for her, mm, especially mm. during this time. And especially knowing that like most likely the civil war, like 1861 to 65 is like her most prolific period. If we aren't sort of entering like the training of Emily Dickinson. It is my turn to read, but I've spoken a lot today. So I think I would like to hear you read it. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I will actually say that in the context of the episode, I think this is the first time we see Emily read one of her poems all the way through, <clears throat> with the exception of like the Sue, um, One Sister Have I in My House episode. Yes. Or that yeah. poem. So this is the other time that we've seen her read one all the way through. Um, and I think Haley Steinfeld does an excellent job of performing an Emily Dickinson who is like extemporaneously uh, creating this poem. No, I'm going to disagree. Really? I, 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 I'm so sorry, Haley. Ooh. Um, I, I just kind of felt like it seemed a little bit like, um, ah, uh, like she's kind of like pulling this. I, I just, I, the reason I find this, and this is something I find a lot with poets in film and TV is like poetry's hard. And as much as people are geniuses, sometimes I would love to just see them like sitting there rubbing things out. Right. Mm, that is a curious turn of phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that means something different for Americans than it does for Brits. <laughs> I just realized. Okay, so what you call erasers in America, we call rubbers here in the UK yes, because you literally. Good. Yeah, because you literally rub right. with them to erase right. something. So oh, wow. we say when we're when we're erasing something, we say rub it out, which I know. Right. Yeah, very different in American English. Okay, so That's let me correct what I'm saying. I'm leaving. I would all love to in. see. I, please don't. I would love to see like, like Haley Steinfeld like crouched over a desk. Mm. Like that's not the right word. Like you know, mm. crossing things out and like chucking paper away and like I mean we did see that in the the opening of the season. I yeah, guess we don't see guess. throwing papers away, but yeah. No. no, it's fine. It's a very small complaint. And <laughs> you liked it. And if I you liked it, it, then that's at least fifty percent of the target audience. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> oh wow. All right. Well shall I read Fame as a fickle food? Yeah, go on. All right, here we go. 
Fame is a fickle food upon a shifting plate whose table once a guest, but not the second time is set, whose crumbs the crows inspect and with ironic caw flap past it to the farmer's corn. Men eat of it and die. That, that final line is just like the Emily Dickinson version of like a haymaker. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> It's, it's so like good. it's like something a um, mean girl would say. Yep. Yeah. I mean, so I mm. I love this poem because I first of all one of the first thing I noticed when I was reading this poem is that there are no dashes. No dashes at all. No punctuation. And no punctuation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um it's very like punchy. Mhm. I want to say um because it kind of hits home quickly. And it's not vague, like it's it's not shy, like it's just telling you what it thinks. Yeah, there is um, no ethereality to it. It's exactly. very present. Yeah. It's basically a combination of it's really one metaphor in a way. Mm-hmm. Um and that is a famous is the metaphor of fame as food, basically. Yes. Um, and how men eat that food and die because it, mm. it doesn't sustain them. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the crows know that it won't sustain them, so they flap past yeah. it to the corn. Yeah, I feel like animals are aware. Like There's a funny sort of... Because Emily has that deep reverence for nature. Mm. We see it in her other poems. Um, and so I think, like, yeah, her saying that fame is almost a... I mean, it isn't almost. Fame is a man-made concept go ahead are you going to push against this because it is, no, the idea no, no. It, is, it is unnatural and so yeah i think like some animals have have respect for so for example like among some some species there's this sense of like i always want to say pecking order you know sure like a, like a pride well, of lions hierarchy. yeah like yeah. A hierarchy mm-hmm. however you're right like fame as an idea is is an entirely human construct. Yeah. And Um, like the result of it being sort of unnatural fits throughout this poem, I think. Um, Yes. And the idea that we eat of it and die adds to that. Well, it's really interesting because like, um, again, you might have to just edit this out if you think it's not relevant. (laughs) Um, But I'm rereading the Iliad at the moment. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, as I'm reading, I'm reading commentary on each book of the Iliad by this academic. And this academic, uh, I can't remember her name, but she was saying how like um, the Iliad is a reflection on the self-destructive nature of the drive for fame. Um, Because the, the whole motivation she points out, like, in, in the Iliad, the Trojans are fighting for survival. Right. The Greeks are fighting for kleos, which just means fame. Right. Or, or glory. And it's like, this drive for, like, kleos is what turns mm. Agamemnon against Achilles, and then turns Achilles against Agamemnon, that then, then just turns the whole Trojan War into a clusterfuck in which nearly everyone dies. <laughs> um, like, so, 
So like, it's this idea yeah. of like, from the very beginning of human culture, this drive for chaos, this drive for fame has been destroying right. us and turning us against one another. Whereas in the Iliad, it makes the point that that is an entirely human concern. The gods never consider, they don't, the gods don't even understand why man wants fame because men are swift to be born and are swift to die. Mm. And fame does them no favors. Favors, yeah. And also the gods are immortal. So for them, the idea of like posterity is mm. meaningless. But yeah, it's just really interesting. Like this, I, this is an idea that I think like the thing that Emily's writing about is something that humans have been grappling with from like the beginnings of literature. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yes, the poem basically is saying fame cannot sustain you. No. And yet everybody clamors for it, or not everybody, but a lot of people clamor for it. And like, I think the, this, this section about like, whose table once a guest, but not a second time is set mm. really speaks to like the idea of, you know, also a cliche, but fame is fleeting. And like, once it's lost, it's never really attained again in the same way. And also does it kind of, go back to this, like, she doesn't want to be famous for her recipe, because you mm -hmm. can be famous for one thing, but right. you can't be famous. You can't be, like, a famous domestic goddess and also a famous poet. She wins the baking contest, and, like, as a result of the baking contest, not only is, like, her recipe going to be published, which is kind of a proxy for, like, a poem, because mm. it is, you know, her creation, but she's also supposed to have this interview, and then it turns into, like, there's a scene in the reception afterwards where Mrs. Dickinson is like, we're going to do the whole baking contest circuit. Like one is, Oh, I wrote it down. Cause I thought it was funny. One win is nice. Two is momentum. Like <laughs> ultimate stage mother. <laughs> Mrs. Dickinson to his, to his needs to get something going in her life. Um, but yeah, I think it like the the rest you say that this is like a theme for the episode. I think it's kind of the theme of the whole season, which is this like the the re the baking contest and the recipe and all of that become a proxy for Emily and the concept of fame. Yeah. And what fame means. So this yeah. is like the beginnings of dipping a toe into what does it mean? And she's getting a taste of it because do you remember what happened to the winner last year? She committed suicide. Not committed, yep. what's the word? We don't use oh, the word um, anymore. Completed. Com yeah. God, that's yeah. worse though. That sounds I know. worse. I feel like there is no good... We're... <laughs> I understand the importance of like semantics in this context, but I feel like there is no good way of articulating that. No. Um, like again knowing where the season is going and like knowing wh what sort of conversations happened around fame and like we've discussed the juxtaposition between sam bowles and nobody and like sue and emily and like these two people on these paths oh my god do i actually have you read to the lighthouse oh god like ages ago because it makes me like sue her whole holding these salons reminds me of um 
oh, the woman into the lighthouse whose name escapes me right now. She's, but her, she's fair. Uh, Mrs. Ramsey. <laughs> Miss, Mrs. Oh, Ramsey. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mrs. Ramsey. Um, yeah. Because the whole point is that Mrs. Ramsey holds these parties and she's like holding this party and her goal is to like set this artist up. The artist is Lily Briscoe. I remember her name. But like the goal is to get Lily Briscoe married, basically. That's one of the things that she hopes for in hosting this party. But like Mrs. Ramsey is there in the first section, and then the middle section is called Time Passes, and it's where like several years pass in the course of a few paragraphs. And like in it, Mrs. Ramsey dies in a parenthetical. And like Oof. that's it. And I think like but the truth is that happens to all of us. Like we will all die in a parenthetical. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. No, don't say that though. That's so sorry. But <laughs> no, but it's true. But so like this sort of it is a complicated push and pull between recognition and notoriety versus like you know having no control over your legacy and having you know your work go unrecognized. Mm. Um, and perhaps I can't Emily. Yeah, I mean, I think we can credit Emily Dickinson with being a fairly wise person, um, mm. and perhaps she understood that it's better, in some ways, it's better to be famous after you're gone. Mm -hmm. Even though you don't reap the benefits of that fame, you also don't reap the tragedy. And now, perhaps if she is aware of this world, wherever she is now, if she is anywhere, um, she is happier knowing that people know of her poems now and derive mm. great pleasure from them and mm. derive great insight from them but also that she's kind of shrouded in mystery to some extent mm -hmm. as if her inner person is safe from the eyes of people who would judge her i wonder if that isn't as as difficult no i was like as difficult as it is i wonder if that isn't some sort of ideal ending but no her life was hard uh, as yeah. we realized from watching a quiet passion and mm. just conceptualizing a life of intense isolation um, mm. from society. Like, there is no winning. Life is hard. <laughs> so I think, just as we're drawing towards the end, I want to ask you, because yeah. as I said before, yeah. like you interact with people who are famous to whatever extent, much more than I do. Um, mm -hmm. and, you've, and you are an Emmy winner yourself. <laughs> Let us not forget what this. What a fucking joke. <laughs> you um, are, though. You are. I was <laughs> Just to clarify for the audience, like there was a, I worked on a production of a show that won an Emmy and they give recognition to all of the crew. So I will be putting it on my resume until the end of time. Thank you. <laughs> but I think that counts as an Emmy winner. So I'm going to say you are an Emmy winner yourself. Secretly going to EGOT behind everyone's back. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah. So um, yes. if you could ever become like massively famous, would you or would you rather be obscure because this is the question emily's facing so i want to put it to you right i think there is a level of fame that exists that could be okay like a level i hesitate to call it fame i feel like there is a level of recognition for your work that exists in a healthy balance with like continuing to produce said work but I think, I think there is also a level of fame that is toxic um, mm. without going into details. And like it, 
stunts you as a creator or as an a artist person. or as yeah as a person like and i would be hesitant because i think attempting to to walk that line is incredibly difficult i always think that it's, it's like you say i think that it's one thing to be known and respected in your right. field right and another to be famous and, yes. and i think that fame for the sake of fame is always dangerous mm. um again like to go back to the trojan war example like the greeks were only there to win glory to them for themselves they had no mm-hmm. other reason mm-hmm. whereas for the trojans it was a matter of life or death you life know? or death yeah I, I think that like if you are only looking for fame for fame's sake fame should be the fruit of hard work it should be it should be like the bulk of your life is the tree and fame is just like the fruit that I feel like I should write that down and put that on a sticky note right now. Like, it, but it's true. It's true. Like, we see, you know, a famous person, but like, so I, I was listening to. Um, we are never going to end this episode. No. I was listening to George George Saunders speaking. Do you know who he? He's a, like no, an American. He's an American author. Um, I saw him at my college. Actually, he use he usually writes like short stories, but he also wrote um a novel and he did a bunch of like long form jur- uh journalism during the Trump campaign um mm. 2016 not 2020 but like i feel like he articulates a certain type of like he talks about just like you sit down and you do the work and like these are all clichés that we hear but like when you don't see it it's hard to conceptualize and when you only see the novel like mm it's it's hard to understand how long it took to make it like the he talks about how he had the idea for the lincoln and the bardo novel like 20 years before he actually sat down to to get to work yeah and like you're right in that the product and the the recognition and the fame if it comes should be the fruit and the rest of your life is the tree yeah. Like, yeah as exhausting and hard to conceive as that is but like recognition for recognition's sake and fame for fame's sake is toxic mm-hmm. guys i think like uh i think we just like <laughs> i think we all learned something from this today and... soak those raisins for <laughs> soak those raisins and brandy for months that's the truth <laughs> that's and you know what so there is no so there's no better metaphor for this message than emily's <laughs> cake Right. Emily's recipe. So there you go. It all comes back to Emily's recipe at the end of the Emily's day. Emily's glorious cake. And months of brandy soaking to get the final result. Which looks heinous, but apparently tastes great. <laughs> <laughs> like like most things that taste amazing. Isn't That's that the case? <laughs> Anyway, also, just very, very quickly. Oh my God, I, come on. I, I, I'll be done, but just at the mention of the raisin soaking, I love the fact that someone else like made a cider cake and was unable to find raisins because Emily bought them all. Oh, yes. <laughs> and she bought them months in advance. I know. Like... She's like... <laughs> so she could make a spare cake. <laughs> like, Oh my God, it's true. <laughs> Right. Okay. So, how many loaves of bread? Quickly. Um, I liked this episode. I laughed a lot. I eight eight. I thought it was a good episode. I liked it. Okay. I'm yep. gonna give it. I'm gonna give it six. 
Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Why, it was, why it so was, much lower? It was all right. Oof. It was all right. All right. I was right. moderately entertained. I have no particular mm. issues with it. Mm. But did it tickle my tickle my bis tickle my biscuit? <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with how you people use English over there? I don't know. I was gonna say like, is it tickle my biscuit or tickle my wicket? Like I can't remember honestly. I don't even think that is a saying. I think I'm just drunk and tired. Um, but like, did I like it? Yeah, it's all right. But did it particularly like bring anything out for me? Not really. This yeah. might be a as a warning. This might be a season of me like overrating everything because I just really loved this season. That's <laughs> all right. I am here to be the cold, hard, ironic Brit. You can be like the over enthusiastic, positive American. Everything's awesome and great. Eleven <laughs> out of ten. Plus plus it, plus. It's raining and cold. Um, and on that note, everyone, on you that can con- note. yeah, you can contact us at edictsonedicts at gmail.com. Yeah, do tune in next time. Please end. Please end this now. <laughs> <laughs>